Hello everyone, welcome back to Coffee Chats with Scientists. My name is Deniz Bakkalcı and I'm your host for the show. This is a platform that connects researchers from different fields. And for those who don't know, we have a center core 3D models of health and disease within UCL Division of Surgery and Interventional Science, which I'm also part of. We aim to develop 3D models to study various conditions. And today's guest was also part of this center and now she's a postdoc in Cambridge. Dr. Ravi Alhosni is someone that I love and respect so much. I'm very happy that I got the chance to work with her for a few years. Ravia completed her BSc in Biomedical Sciences at the University of Kent and followed by her MSc and PhD in Tissue Engineering at UCL. She specialized in stem cell niche engineering. Besides all this, she's such a genuine and kind person and I think kindness is as important as your science in academia. Welcome, Rawia. I wanted to keep the intro a bit longer. I've been getting comments on how I keep the podcast very brief. So how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good, Denise. Thanks for having me on here today. It's my pleasure. Uh, Can we hear your coffee choice, please, before we start? Because that's my standard question now, which I have a guess. Oh, you should definitely know this. Although it's very, um, thanks to my sister, it's quite um, extensive. So I do have two preferences when it comes to coffee. So every morning I usually have filter coffee using a V60. And I guess that requires grinding fresh coffee and basically using the pour over system. If you haven't tried it, everyone should. It's very addictive. It does change the way you drink coffee and appreciate coffee, which makes it a lot harder to drink coffee outside. Um, But on other than that, I do enjoy a flat white. So that's uh, basically my standard coffee when I'm out in the club. Yeah, sure. I really miss having flat, flat white with you and a snack, which I yeah. eat the most of it, as you yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> you who are tre- like my true coffee buddy would, I miss you guys so I'm much, especially. Coffee. Yeah, yeah. I usually have a coffee with a snack, uh, which, and you end up having the snack. So it works yes. out pretty well. <laughs> especially you and your lovely sister are coffee experts. Like you guys are very advanced I really miss you I'm, I'm looking forward to have you guys back so I can actually have some coffee with you later on because very you're soon, very soon, hopefully. yeah you're a different level for sure <laughs> so you're in Cambridge right now how is Cambridge do you enjoy the weather people how do you find it like after living in London for so long well instead of hearing sirens and um living in a construction site I basically live in an area where I wake up to birds chirping and go to bed hearing birds chirping so it's extremely different and it's lovely actually I guess I've gotten to the stage in my life where I prefer the quiet and peace oh my god yeah yeah and I realized I am surrounded by a lot of older people so they do prefer it to be quiet which is great because um, I've had enough of being living in a construction site for seven years so it's been really good (laughs) Sure. I think everyone wants to escape from where they are right now. So actually it worked, it worked well for you that you moved to a different city. Plus, you can always come back here. I'm here. <laughs> it's an hour away. It's not too far. Yeah, I would love to, you know, get away to a quiet zone right now. Which, it's to be honest, maybe, maybe with my friends and family, I would love that. Not by, by myself, because I was by myself quite all the time <laughs> during this year. So I don't, I don't want loneliness. Okay. Well, we so, got someone in Cambridge to enjoy the greenness and the quiet, peaceful environment. Oh, I can't wait to visit you once we're allowed, honestly. Just yeah. looking forward to that. So let's start with how did you get into research and what was your motivation and also what kept you motivated throughout your entire studies and also afterwards as well? 
So believe it or not, I didn't actually know that I wanted to be to get into research. So it was only during my master's when I did my final research project. That was actually the first time I entered a lab to do any form of research. So before then, I didn't really know that I was going to do a PhD or that I wanted to do a PhD. So I think it helped. It was the people that I was surrounded with, the project, the supervisors. And so during my master's uh, project, I had... I was trained by a PhD student and got introduced to one of our postdocs within the team. And I think they just built a really nice environment and I got to really enjoy my research project. And that is the point or the time I actually decided that maybe going down the research route was the way forward for me. And that's when I started my PhD. So before then, I actually had no idea that I was going to do a PhD. And I think it's different for everyone else because there, there are people that know they want to do a PhD from the time they've completed their undergrad um but I know that was very different for me so it was only yeah. one part of my master's that well actually towards the end of my master's that I, I made that decision so you were kind of clueless in your bachelor's which I think yeah. a lot of biomedical scientists are clueless yeah. during because you don't really get much time in the lab so you don't really know you're not really exposed to any research at all so for you to make that decision it's always you're going off maybe what other people have done, but other than that, you have never really experienced research at that stage. Yeah, well, we haven't been given too many options. I mean, maybe it's the other way around. Biomedical scientists get a lot of options and they really don't know what to do with it because it's, it's a very transferable field, yeah. isn't it? You can just end up in consultancy and, or just stay in academia. Yeah, I, so masters then, that's, that's it. I think that's a wise decision. For example, with me, I, I, I kind of knew it from my bachelor's and maybe that yeah. was bias, but obviously there's no did you do right projects during your I, I did. Yes, yeah, so that's I usually did. help. That does help, yeah. I also did summer placement, which was okay. yeah, I really enjoyed them. I definitely recommend all BSEs if they can get a place. I'm not sure how current circumstances will affect within a few years, but I mean summer placements were very helpful. And also, you know, doing a PhD is never easy, but surely there is something about them that makes us chase after. Was there anything particular that kept you going? Because as far as I know, you didn't take a gap year or a break, right? And mm, no. which I was the same. And for me, I just like to keep myself busy and I feel alive only if I'm learning new things every day. And that's what attracts me to science. So what, what was that for you? So my motivation that kept me going was basically my passion for the topic, because being in research is not easy at all. There are a lot of probably more downs than there are ups throughout the process. But as long as you have a passion for what you're doing, that's basically one of the, your main drivers. Um, and it does help to be in a good group. So a group that either promotes, um, you know, your goodness and what you're capable of doing and they cherish that and understand it um that really does help um but yeah I think that was basically one of my main drivers because I did have a lot of um dips in my research and periods where nothing was working but you do need that motivation to keep you going and it's knowing that you well for me it was basically producing something and so I did have a clear vision of where I wanted to go so that I basically did whatever I could whenever I could to get to where I wanted to be so yeah, and mm. I feel like your lab books are very neat and tidy <laughs> they they, mo <laughs> they motivate me so I think that they did the same thing for you you're very organized and 
you know, uh, your desk space is not, not always a good thing in science. <laughs> in the office space, you're the only organized. <laughs> the rest of us are like piled up with a lot of things. And yeah, you kind of motivate all of us. And I think, obviously, like, I'm not expecting you to improve this, but I, I think you're very talented. And I think that was the other reason that you stayed in that that's my personal opinion but you're good at, you're good in the lab you do a lot of different techniques and stuff I think you enjoy learning new techniques am I correct because that's I, how do, I, know. I definitely do I definitely yeah. do and I learned it from the best so um that is the only reason I am where I am it's learning from the best and I had I was surrounded by really really talented people and I literally learned everything that I know from them so it is all testament to them so thank you everyone yeah, but what I like about you is, you know how you said that I learned from the best, but you know how to, well, and our entire group is the same, but you know how to pass information on, like you're you're a very good teacher and you train me in certain techniques. Like, I think you enjoy also teaching. Is that true? Yeah. Really yeah. You learn really well and then pass it on. I think that's just the key for academia, basically. Like you just have to, it's an information transfer between all different levels. And it's always, I think it's amazing to learn new, new things every day. But I also have a generic question, but I'm still going to ask, what skills did you gain from your PhD? Like, do you feel much stronger? It, it can be the opposite, but I just, want to know how do you feel compared to Ravia from five years ago um I've definitely learned to be a lot more patient <laughs> I think your PhD really tests your patience with literally every step and it tr basically trains you to accept rejection to accept things not going well and you definitely become a lot stronger and having gone through that I think I did um I learned a lot. I learned to, yeah, again, um, be more patient, to work with a wide range of people, to understand the way people work and to be able to work with people. So it teaches you to become a very strong team player, which is great, especially when you do work in a good team. Um, what else did I learn? Um, I think those are really the I was, things. I'm sure I, there's a whole long list of things that I can, can't think of. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I don't cry for boys anymore. My <laughs> but obviously, I'm joking. You definitely learn a lot of harder things to achieve out there. <laughs> I think so. I think all of us need, needed to be really resilient. And I, I can count yeah. the times I cried next to you, uh, really? like physical, actual crying. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but, it's not uh, an easy journey. It's not an easy journey. Yeah, but looking back, I think it was just an amazing experience with all ups and downs like you share a lot with the person going through you know next for example you you you're very special to me because we kind of been through similar things together and um I think our friendship's going to remain very special because the uh, things we share I you think do the, the family like your team yeah, becomes your family after I five agree. six years yeah all of all of our teams are family now and wherever mm. they go wherever people go I feel like we're gonna it's going to be a special bond um but people need to be aware that you're a perfectionist <laughs> I know you are in many things but especially after uh, your work were there well you already mentioned a little bit but were there any ups and downs of being a perfectionist because I know that you well all of us most of the time stay in the lab long hours but you were like oh I need to make this 
write. I, I, I've seen you many times that you back and forth that repeated a lot of stuff. Not that it didn't work before, but because you're a perfectionist. So did you did you see any ups and downs of, of this? Um, um, definitely. Yeah. So I guess one of the things that I always did was I, well, in the beginning, at least, I really maintained my lab book and I had, so when it came to collecting my data and saving my data, I was very um, specific with how I did it. And that really helped me towards the end of my PhD when it came to writing up my thesis, et cetera, and writing up my papers. Um, but again, they're obviously, to, you will make some, um, you will miss things here and there, but that was one of the main things I tried to maintain. Just make sure you know where you're keeping your data, you've logged things correctly. And I was a bit crazy and I used to number, this is something I learned, which actually really works for me. So I used to number every single sample that I ever worked with in the lab. So if I had to go back into a minus 80 freezer and pull out a sam sample, I would know exactly what that sample was just by numbering it. And I kept a numbering log. Um, so a numbering system that really helped as well. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's, so, that's yeah, a good tip. It used, to, it used to drive people crazy and they used to sit there watching me label every single sample with like tape and everything. So it is very time consuming. That's probably one of the disadvantages of being a perfectionist. Um, yeah, but it works well for you because we have, for example, especially for, because you brought that up for Eppendorf tubes, like the tubes we label, they have yeah. so many conditions that we need to put on top. Otherwise we won't understand which sample is which, but numbering is a good tip like just put a number and write it in your lab book and write it in your log book and on, on your laptop or whatever but also you know we put these like tubes in hot blocks and stuff labels come off we have we have to have a backup plan and you I think I, I learned that from you as well that we have to come up with some backup plans because yeah. uh, samples if you rely on samples they can upset you they're worse than your ex-boyfriend, I can't 100% guarantee. <laughs> the last thing you want to be doing is repeating the entire experiment. So, no, definitely. It, it is time-consuming, but I guess that's what kind of helped me towards, um, throughout my PhD. But in terms of the disadvantage, um, you do tend to procrastinate a lot. The reason is, um, is because when you're working towards something, you want to make sure you have enough time to work on it. So you will not touch that piece of document or you will not work on that paper until you've been able to allocate three days in a row where you can sit and work on it because you want to perfect it. And because I can't work in bursts, um, I can't spend an hour working on something. I need to literally allocate either a day or a good chunk of time. So until I can do that, I will put things off. And I guess that's one of the bad things about being a perfectionist because when I'm told to oh if I have to read a document or if I have to fix something or work on something I give it my 100% um doesn't matter how important it is to me but if I have okayed or agreed to doing something I will do it with as much um time and attention or give it as much time and attention as I can so yeah again that is um so yeah procrastinating and taking too long to get things done because you're <laughs> Because of being a perfectionist. So that is a huge disadvantage, I have to say. In one of your papers, I remember like a figure took a week, which was already ready before, but you were just like playing with where it took. But it looks amazing at the end. And plus, to be honest, you think it takes so much time, but then I feel like you get less maybe 
comments because it's already a bit perfect is that correct or to be um, honest it depends on the reviewer I guess but then yeah and I do I had supervisors that are perfectionist as well so it really helps so if I didn't spot something they would destroy it straight away because they're perfectionists too which was not amazing because I <laughs> what a know. combination <laughs> <laughs> yeah all right okay but as a result you have perfect papers and uh, you know especially your work on the creation of a biomimetic periosteum for bone repair is one of my personal favorites because as you know I'm also very interested in bone tissue engineering yes and in fact you have a beautiful graphical abstract which people can find in the second page of your paper um maybe we'll put a link in the twitter you know when I was share- when I'm going to share this so yeah. um, that figure summarizes your work but I think it will be good to hear from you that what's the importance of this work and what what is it you know why is it novel what parts did you struggle with especially um, maybe you can give some later on like tips for researchers who are preparing their papers for submission as well. Okay, so my um, PhD was basically focused on the periosteum, which is the outer membrane of your bone. And it was mainly around trying to repair um, bone defects, especially um, non-unions, which are bone defects that don't really heal. Um, So what my project was based on was trying to re-engineer the periosteum that could be used um, at fracture sites to help with bone repair. But before actually engineering the periosteum, um, one of the main things that I focused on was trying to pull out the progenitor cells from this periosteum and try to grow them. So the one thing we know about growing these periosteal stem cells is that when you grow them in conventional growth medium that we use within the lab, they do start to alter their genotype and their phenotype. So they start to differentiate down lineages or basically they um, turn into cells that aren't usually um, present within the periosteum or within the bone environment. So they do alter them in a negative way. So my project was trying to develop a growth medium um, or basically a solution that will help maintain their characteristics when we move them into a lab setting. And so I ended up creating a growth factor or a defined growth medium for parasol derived cells and they basically helped maintain their characteristics over a very long period of time within the lab. And once that was completed, I took these cells and that's when I started to engineer the periosteum. So I brought in a 3D matrix, a collagen matrix that we all use in the lab. And in the presence of this growth medium that I created, I was actually able to enhance their ability to maintain their stem cell characteristics in vitro. I think you simplified simplified growth factor cocktail too much I think it, it's a lot of work in there in a quick snapshot this is basically what I did I'm sure there's a lot more uh, detail on my paper um but yeah that's base. that's basically what I did so it was incorporating the cells within this 3d matrix with this growth medium that I created um and I guess the next step was either adding complexity to it and uh, trying to think of what other factors are within the periosteum but I obviously never got around to that um yeah. But yeah, I did explore a few other things that um, I will hopefully be publishing about soon. Why do you think it's important to engineer stem cell niche? Like which diseases you reckon will be important? Um, so my background is basically around um, skeletal work. So, But they, you, there's various progenitor cells around the body. So you can look at um, repairing 
the epithelium of lungs, or you can look at um, repairing various osteochondral defects. So there you have, I mean, stem cells everywhere in your body. And if you can regenerate tissue, damaged tissue, then you can go for it. Um, I think they do it around kidney tissue as well. So pretty much yeah. every yeah. type of tissue that has a stem cell population. And that, yeah, that basically takes us on to what my postdoc's about, but yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a very, very important area, especially like it's difficult because it's a bit of a gray area like stem cells for a lot of people. But when you get into it, it, it just expands a lot more because basically they differentiate uh, very extensively. So yeah. um, any tip, like did you struggle publishing this? Oh, obviously, like it was it can't be a good, you know, easy work. But do you have any tips when people preparing their papers for submission so when it came to actually preparing so the first thing I did was um, obviously you put together your figures um, for publication before you actually write up your paper to see if you have enough information to publish and what I guess advice that I'd give to anyone either starting a project or starting a PhD is try to think about your paper from day one and try to put together figures as you go along because you're probably you're more likely to publish a lot earlier because you can see where the gaps are in your research mm -hmm. and or what you need to do to complete this paper or this project. Um, mm -hmm. But if you do wait um, till the end to then decide, okay, I'm going to write a paper now, you do start to see a lot of gaps that you then have mm -hmm. to go back and fill. So I think if you do have a vision from day one, it does help you um, publish also, early and publish quicker, basically. And it makes yeah. it a lot easier. Yeah, and also, you know, for example, our 3D work, usually 21 days of experiments, right? Mm -hmm. um, you have to plan properly. Like you need to have your controls and everything. Otherwise, uh, to publish your work, it's just you, you need to go back in the experiment and set up another experiment with the same experiment with extra controls and everything. I think it gets yeah. like exhausting and you might miss a lot of... Yeah plan it properly just to see the bigger picture rather than you know doing bits and pieces every now and I think because yeah. it, it's better if you do the just make, basically do a one big setup with a lot of controls and your main experiment because it's more reliable more you know people can repeat your experiments a lot better but Definitely. yeah I agree would you like to continue this work or what would you like to work you know what is your neck what is next for you what do you plan um so I was very invested in this project and it was um I mean if I could ever go back and continue developing on the periosteum I definitely would um I did get I was very attached to this tissue um you know uh, moving <laughs> forward I didn't want to I wanted to work directly with an um in vivo site so a lot of my work was in vitro working within the lab, but I wanted to translate a lot of my the work that I was doing. So this, um, I actually got a postdoc position here in Cambridge and it's actually a really good um, transition for me because now I've spent, I've picked up all the skills that I need to work or to develop a model, et cetera, in, in vitro. But now that this postdoc is giving me a chance to implement that into an in vivo setting. So it's mm -hmm. basically trying to implement um, a scaffold with some cells within um, an osteoarthritic um, defect so um, in vivo so that's actually a really good transition for me because that is where I wanted to go moving forward so I'm I think very happy will give me the skills and the opportunity to do that yeah I'm very happy you're staying in Bonfield yeah definitely <laughs> I, I want to see you around 
definitely for sure yeah yeah um thank you so much Ravi I honestly enjoy hearing your work and I'm looking forward to your future projects it's it's been um presented a conference sometime and you can attend that it'll be great if you attended because oh, i do you think i'm gonna miss that there's no <laughs> way i'll be there in the front row for sure um yeah. thank you for joining us today it, it thank was you a pleasure for having to have me. you here thank you for having me denise coffee chats with scientists will have guests weekly and thank you for tuning in stay connected